0: We'll be Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The rigorously orthodox two segments today, Wanda Bertram, our carceral state regular, will talk about an underappreciated aspect of American punishment, electronic monitoring. And then Joseph Tyre will give us the rundown of Hezbollah. We're familiar with some aspects of mass incarceration, most famously the roughly two million people behind bars, and less famously the almost four million on probation or parole. These are enormous numbers approaching the combined populations of Los Angeles and Houston. A much less salient form of correctional supervision is electronic monitoring, the ankle bracelet that keeps cops informed of the target's whereabouts. It might seem like a humane alternative to life behind bars, but it's not really all that humane. It's imposed on many people who should be left alone, guilty of crimes that shouldn't be crimes. It can have terrible effects on the physical and mental health of the monitored. Here with more is Wanda Bertram, who, among other things, works with the Prison Policy Initiative. The PPI has published several reports on electronic monitoring, the most recent in October. Wanda Bertram. Electronic monitoring, I think, seems like a magic ball to some people. It seems humane and not as bad as prison, but uh, in some ways it's like prison without bars, isn't it?
1: It is. The typical pitch around electronic monitoring that you hear from lawmakers is that it's a cheap, high-tech alternative to incarceration. And for anyone who has been studying the criminal legal space for any amount of time, all of those words are major red flags. In what way? You know, you can start with alternative to incarceration, right? That's a that's a word that we hear a lot about a bunch of different things. Drug court, mental health court, probation, diversion programs of various types. And I don't want to say that all of these quote-unquote alternatives are not worth pursuing or wouldn't be helpful for someone who is facing incarceration. But it is one of those words that, or one of those phrases that, you know, you should you should treat as a red flag. Electronic monitoring, in particular, would not feel like an alternative to incarceration if you were on one. Even compared to, quote unquote, traditional probation or, or pretrial supervision or parole, there are many more conditions that you have to abide by, and they're more invasive. Typically, you have to remain within a geographic location specified by the, the office that you're in and enforced by the this thing around your ankle. You have to abide by a set schedule and you have a curfew. Uh, there are certain jobs that you can't have because they involve moving around too much. Um, you can't be homeless. That involves moving around too much. There are limitations on what people you can see. If you violate any of these conditions on purpose or by mistake, this, this thing immediately lets the court or the probation office know and you can go straight to jail. That's a very intense mechanism of surveillance. And that's striking given how much of an increase we've seen in jurisdictions blithely increasing their use of, of ankle monitors.
0: Okay, so it's basically the technology. It's just a GPS strapped to your ankle. Is that what it's all about?
1: It is. And I want to raise that even that is, is kind of a misnomer because GPS helps you get places in your car. Um, electronic monitors have this unfortunate propensity for placing people where they're not, an advocate in Milwaukee, a friend of the Prison Policy Initiative, um, was on an ankle monitor, and it once placed him in the middle of Lake Michigan, right? And he got into trouble
0: with the parole office over that.
1: There are technology problems along with everything else, but, but you know, even at best, it's a very invasive technology.
0: But it's uh, growing like crazy, right? The numbers aren't so great, but uh, we do know it's growing like crazy.
1: right. The last numbers that we had on electronic monitoring were that uh, there were about 125,000 people on it as of 2015. That was a big increase from 2005 when there were only 50,000 people on it. And of course, 2015, that number is really old. It would be nice to have a more recent number. But we do have reason to, to think that the number of people on EM has drastically increased. In particular locations, it's gone way up. In Houston, it went from virtually zero to 4,000 in five years. In Chicago, there's now, uh, as of 2021, there were over 8,000 people on electronic monitors. That's thousands more than are in the local jail. In ICE, uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement's immigration, uh, quote-unquote, alternative to detention program, which is puts people on electronic monitors, that increased from about 20,000 people in 2014 to almost 300,000 people in 2023. So we're seeing... in In various government agencies that actually put out this kind of data, we are seeing this massive increase in the use of ankle monitors. Um, Unfortunately, the criminal legal system is just too fractured for national data on how many people are on EM to be out there at the moment.
0: There's several uh, legal situations it's used in. It's before trial, after trial, after conviction, after release. Yeah, G- give us the uh, the rundown on what circumstances it's used under.
1: Yeah, it can it can be a lot of different things. Like I just mentioned, ICE has been using it to monitor immigrants who uh, who have you know civil cases processing through their system. There's uh, pretrial EM, so electronic monitoring as an alternative to pretrial detention. That's an idea that's gained traction with policymakers because, or, or, you know, as counties have explored uh, ending money bail or reducing money bail, there's this incredible temptation, okay, we'll release them from jail and we'll just put them on ankle monitors instead. There is EM as an alternative to probation. There's EM as an alternative to traditional parole. This is EM basically worming its way into systems of supervision that have, you know, I want to be clear already gotten too large. There's community supervision, pretrial release, the, the number of people under criminal legal supervision is already immense in this country, especially if you're looking at the number of people who are having misdemeanor cases, right, low-level cases processed through the system. And what's concerning to me is that people for whom this level of monitoring would have been unthinkable before even in our unparalleled punitive system, are now being put under that kind of surveillance because they're on a monitor.
0: People focus on the monitoring as perhaps a more humane alternative to incarceration, but the underlying problem is that we just criminalize and punish too many things in this country, right? And whether you're wearing this electronic ball and chain around your ankle or doing time in a traditional prison, there's just too much punishment.
1: Right, right. And that's, that's I think what people need to pay, you know, really close attention to. In Chicago, for example, Chicago Appleseed released some data around what people who were on electronic monitors were were being charged with. And it mirrors what's true in the criminal legal system overall, which is it's this huge spread of offenses that's, you know, it could be a person offense, or it could be just a minor drug offense, or it could be public order, or it could be a violation of their probation. It does not matter. Now, I'm not trying to say that some people deserve to be on electronic monitors more than others. Though in some cases, that might be true. What we're seeing suggests that Instead of being diligent or instead of putting any thought at all into who needs more surveillance, who needs less surveillance, counties are just throwing people onto these things. And I think that the reason that 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 that's true is because they have them available, because it is cheaper than incarceration, because it is rather convenient. And, you know, at the same time, like you're saying, most of these people should not even be under supervision, Right, they shouldn't even be caught up in the system at all. These are folks who you look at the charges that most people are facing in in the legal system, and it's, I mean, it's stuff like you know, you failed to appear at court, and now we're going to put you uh, under under an extra layer of punishment because of that, right? Because you you know you for, you forgot when your court date was, or you missed your court date for some reason that you couldn't control. People who are who are in the system for just living their lives, right? Homeless people who are you know being criminalized for being homeless, electronic monitoring. Uh, is often pitched as a solution to our excessive forms of incarceration. But our excessive form of incarceration is a policy and it's a social problem. It's a misguided response to, you know, the massive inequality and the public health problems that we're looking at on a local level. And it's, it's not going to be fixed by um, importing this new tech.
0: And people can uh, be exonerated for the crimes they were charged with, but still go to <laughs> go to prison for violating the terms of the electronic monitoring
1: right, right. I mean, there are people who are going to prison for years because they tampered with an electronic monitor and it's it's categorized as felony escape. It, it doesn't matter if you're eventually i mean it's just, that's in that respect it's just like traditional forms of pretrial release or pre or, or probation or parole right It doesn't matter what happens to the original charges. If you did something while you were under supervision, that itself is is a crime, even though it wouldn't be a crime for most people.
0: And in some jurisdictions, people have to pay for the privilege of uh, wearing this thing?
1: Yes, that's very, very common. I'm glad that you brought that up the Fines and Fees Justice Center did this amazing report where they, they looked at the the amounts that people have to pay on a weekly or even a daily basis. People are paying anywhere from a dollar a day for electronic monitoring to $47 a day, if you can believe that. It's not uncommon for folks to be paying $25 a day. And we don't really know the full extent of these fees yet, but we do know that there are many counties that have been caught in recent years relying on fines and fees to fund their court systems and other parts of their government. Um, And I think that EM has kind of opened a door to do this in a new way.
0: Yeah. When I first saw the phrase offender finance justice, I was just stunned by it, but it's rather pervasive and getting more so.
1: It is. And I think that this is, again, one of those things that that kind of sneaks up on you Um, or sneaks up on us as a public when we do kind of allow these quote-unquote alternatives to incarceration to enter the system, right? We don't think that it's going to expand the, the, you know, financial, you know, the exploitation or the financial oppression of people in the legal system. Why would you? Why would you think that? But that's exactly what happens. And, you know, similarly, no one really expects that, okay, we're going to create an electronic monitoring program and that's going to reduce the number of people in jail. Well, then you look in cases like Houston and San Francisco. Years later, actually, the total number of people under supervision has increased thanks to electronic monitoring, right? It hasn't decreased. So it's stuff that is not pitched, obviously, as part of the EM program, but it does. It, 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 it's a, a symptom of it.
0: And it's a big business for um, some people, right? Yes. Your listeners might
1: know names like GeoGroup. Um, the private prison corporation um, Securus, the the telecom giant that uh, peddles phone and other products to jails and prisons. These are uh, a couple of the big corporations that are are getting into the electronic monitoring business, and that's something I think is uh, really worrisome. Partially because it's a it's it's an unexplored space. I don't know that many journalists even who have been able to penetrate these particular businesses and understand what the strategy of these companies is. But it's, it's quite disturbing because, you know, you look at a company like Securus, which got its start peddling phone, phone services to prisons and jails. Then the FCC began regulating phone services and then Securus said, OK, we're going to now we have the ear of prisons and jails. We're going to pivot to video calls and, you know, we're going to get them to eliminate in-person visits. And we're going to start introducing tablet computers and we're going to get them to eliminate physical mail you know, companies like this are always looking for opportunities to expand the business that they have, right? So so electronic monitoring, you know, once your county is experimenting with it or has a, has an EM program in place, you can expect that the relationship that it has with those companies is not going to end there. I don't know what it would become. Uh, I don't know what new technologies are going to be introduced or, or, or hawked by these, by these corporations, but I just have a really bad feeling about it.
0: I'm speaking with Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative. Yeah, it's like the weapons business. It's just uh, recession-proof and seems like to be on a constant growth path. There's always some new angle, some new scheme, and big checks from government agencies uh, that uh, private uh, operators can cash.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I think the the important distinction, of course, is that. Unlike the weapons business, I think that EM is often something that lawmakers with really good intentions will, um, will look to as an option, right? Like I've talked to county controllers and, and we've talked to local and state legislators who are interested in EM because they think, okay, we have, you know, we have a lot of people in jail. Let's use this as a, as a means of getting people out of jail pre-trial. Right or let's you know we have a, a ton of people who are in prison. Why don't we get some of those people out or divert some of those people to electronic monitoring instead? Um, and it and it seems like a it's a a quick fix, but yeah, you do have to realize that this is not something that's going to uh, again like and I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but this is not uh, an alternative if you're on one right. You still feel like you're in prison you're just in prison in your own home or in your own community right and advocates like James Kilgore um, with the challenging ecarceration project in in Illinois have been really bringing that to light um, by you know talking about their own experiences and talking about how they still feel incarcerated and still feel the shadow of the of the legal system over them because of you know how tightly they're they're surveilled
0: and an uh, angle that I didn't uh, think about it until I read uh, your report on this. Uh, that uh, um, these things can have uh, harmful effects on physical and mental health,
1: right? Yeah, I mean it it can it can have all sorts of unintended consequences. Something that actually surprised me when so so we prepared this, like you you alluded to, the Prison Policy Initiative where I work prepared this report recently about pretrial electronic monitoring programs, and something uh, that surprised me when we released this and I read it was that there are some people who can't even go to the hospital or go to the pharmacy when they're on EM because that's that's outside of the the geographic limitations that's imposed. And that's something that is gonna affect a lot of people because people on probation and parole, these folks, you know, just like people in jail, tend to have chronic health problems right? It, it tends to be people who have, they're more likely to have uh, a mental illness, more likely to be struggling with a substance use disorder, all sorts of things that are going to necessitate trips to the pharmacy, even trips to the hospital. If your monitor goes off and you do that, that's going to be a real problem for you. It means that we're effectively punishing people for having health issues. And then of course, and I think this is maybe more what you were getting at, there's the actual physical pain of having this thing around your leg, people talking about lesions and, and you know, chronic pain from from having to deal with this. And, and you know, these are folks who are, you know, often increasingly older people, right? Uh, the, the share of people in the legal system who are older is increasing. Often people who are already disabled. This is not like a magic halo
0: that we place over people
1: and say, ah, oh, you're, you know, you're supervised, but you, you won't even know it.
0: And there's an impact on the lucky um, recipients' families, right? I mean, of course, right? Like we were talking about those, those daily fees that you have to pay. That money,
1: you can't get that money without the help of your family. You know, we're talking about people who are working class or uh, low income, I guess I should say, and or, uh, you know, if you're looking at hundreds of dollars in startup fees for an electronic monitor, you're going to have to lean on your family for that. So this is something that where, you know, just like just like incarceration, um, the, the effects radiate out into people's communities.
0: Okay, so the what is to be done question? Do we just want to throw them out? Um, is there a humane way to do this, or is that asking the wrong set of questions?
1: No, I mean, I think it's the right. It's I think it's the right question, we, and we do want to throw them out. I mean, in the sense that we need to start paying some really close attention to when. And when I say we, I really do mean like every single one of us, because this is sort of like jail. This is a local issue. The expansion of electronic monitoring is largely happening on a local scale with your jail and your county, again, looking to it as an alternative to probation or pretrial incarceration. And so we need to, I think, I, I, I would love it if more journalists took a look at, you know, what, when this was expanding in their counties. I would love it if more lawmakers were critical and, and watchful about this. There are so many places right now where it's being pitched as this benevolent thing. And rather than putting people on electronic monitors, just release them from jail, Right? We already have a ton of research showing that when you release folks on their own recognizance, rather than keeping them in detention or releasing them on with intense pretrial supervision, that's okay. You don't end up with, you know, this massive increase in arrests. You know, you don't end up with an increase in crime because, you know, the fact is that most, most of the disorder that comes from releasing people pretrial and, you know, for instance, if you see them, if, if they're missing their court dates, a lot of that disorder comes from the system, right? The court system failing to adequately inform people of when their court date is or not making the kinds of accommodations that would allow people to show up, like having childcare at court. These are the sorts of services that need to be made available so that people can not be detained and just go about their lives in a normal way and prepare for their hearings. And at the same time, of course, we need to push to you know reduce... And entirely end, you know, the criminalization of things like drug possession. Electronic monitoring is not an alternative to ending the prosecution of drug use. That just has to go away. Um it's not an alternative to ending the, the criminalization of homelessness. That just has to that just has to end, right? I think we need to look really critically at what EM is is supposed to be substituting for and say, why can't we just do that?
0: Final off-topic kind of question. For the early years of the pandemic, it looked like the um, incarcerated population was declining modestly. And is that turning around now? Are we getting back to putting more people behind bars?
1: This fits really well into into the conversation, I think. So there was this perception during the pandemic that we were going to see a lasting rollback of the criminal justice system because local... Jail systems, court systems slowed down. Fewer people were admitted to jails. Fewer people were admitted to prisons. There was significant shrinkage in the in you know the incarceration systems in this country overall. But what we now know is that the and we know this because of uh, data that the Bureau of Justice Statistics uh, recently released about 2022 is that the populations of prisons and jails are almost back to where they were pre pandemic. And I want to say that, you know, we're actually we actually may be in a worse position now than we were before, precisely because a lot of jurisdictions took the opportunity of the pandemic to increase electronic monitoring. So in those areas, now you have uh, physical infrastructure that wasn't available before. To not only put people in jail and put people in prison, but also to put people into like electronic prison in their communities. So, you know, we're shortly going to be back to where we were before the pandemic, in terms of populations behind bars, and we're also now facing this new issue.
0: This is hard to quantify, but it, it seems like there's been a return to a punitive sensibility in the political class, the media, um, and a good bit of the population. It's like we uh, had a, a moment's pause for humane uh, reflection, and now we're back to being nasty again.
1: Yes, yeah. There, there's there's a politics that is resurging that I don't know if everyone you know expected. I didn't. I didn't expect it. Right. We now have truth and sentencing uh, laws being passed in a handful of states. There are laws being passed even in you know, liberal states around fentanyl possession, um, where if you, you know, possess or if you deal fentanyl, you, know, you can now uh, go to prison for 50 years. That's not something that we would have thought was conscionable. That's not, not you know, in recent memory. But now th- there are these new panics that are going around and we're kind of returning to form as far as thinking that punishment is, is how we deal with things like these really critical health issues.
0: That was Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative. You can find them on the web at prisonpolicy.org. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Bach's chromatic fantasy and fugue, the fugue part, performed by Alfred Brendel. Next, Hezbollah, one of the most demonized organizations in the world. It's been on the U.S. government's list of terrorist organizations since 1997. When I searched the word on Facebook the other day, I was presented with a series of warnings that I had typed a very dangerous word and had to confirm several times that I'd really meant to do this. God knows what sort of list I'm now on for this infraction, though I probably was on it already. But what is it? What are its history and politics? What is its appeal? What drives it? To answer those questions, here's Joseph Daher, a Swiss-Syrian activist and scholar. He's the author of Hezbollah, The Political Economy of the Party of God, published in 2016 by Pluto. In the interview, we talk about the role of sectarianism in Lebanese society and politics. The country is remarkably diverse in both ethnicity and religion, and managing those populations has been a challenge for the state and ruling class for a long time. Now, specific governmental offices are reserved for specific religions and ethnic groups. For example, the president has to be a Maronite Christian, the prime minister a Sunni Muslim, the speaker of the parliament a Shia Muslim, and the deputy prime minister and deputy speaker of the parliament, Eastern Orthodox. Okay, here's Joseph Dyer. You make the point that. Western analysts tend to look only at the religious dimensions of organizations like Hezbollah and ignore the political and other class dimensions. So what should we be looking at in addition to the purely religious dimensions of Hezbollah that the Western analysts often overlook?
2: What is clear is that if we only consider uh, these political parties through religious lens, we won't understand at all. These political parties that have to be understood as, you know, being constructed in the contemporary history of the region with various uh, influences being class uh, dynamics, but also geopolitical dynamics, dynamics related to social movements. Uh, etc. And Hezbollah is not, in this perspective, different from other modern political parties in Europe uh, and other uh, regions of the world. One of the, I think, the the most important thing is not to to analyze the Middle East uh, through cultural lens, but to analyze the Middle East with materialist dynamics, analysis, just as we would do Uh, for other regions of the world. Otherwise, we have an orientalist perspective, which is catastrophic.
0: To be fair, the Lebanese ruling class has encouraged sectarian identifications, encouraged people to have their primary identifications be with their religious grouping, right? This has been a divide and rule strategy of
2: uh, Lebanese elites for a long time. It did, and this was inherited. If we look at the origins of the, you know, the sectarian, neoliberal, uh, and liberal political system, uh, in Lebanon is the mid-nineteenth century through, you know, the various intervention of the Ottoman Empire and various Western countries, being France, England, French mandate over Lebanon in the twenties until beginning of the 40s, consolidated the sectarian and system in Lebanon. And afterwards, indeed, as you were mentioning, the various fraction of the Lebanese uh, bourgeoisie of different uh, sectarian communities have uh, instrumentalized uh, sectarianism as an instrument to consolidate their power on various popular classes, but also as an instrument to prevent any solidarity from below between the various popular classes of Lebanon.
0: Okay, let's uh, now start talking specifically about Hezbollah. Founded in around 1985, but had origins a few years earlier. So, tell us about the origins of the organization uh, and uh, the environment of the time that uh, gave rise to it.
2: Yes, so so Hezbollah, uh, as you were saying, uh, was established at the beginning of the 80s, officially in the 85. The foundation of Hezbollah are multiple. Uh, First of all, I think it's clear that uh, the the influence of the Islamic uh, Republic of Iran and the establishment of this uh, regime in 79 and the willingness of a section of the Iranian ruling class to export the so-called Islamic Revolution to the Middle East and most specifically to to Shia communities. Its great success was Lebanon. And actually, we can see that the first groups that came to the fore in Lebanon in the beginning of the 80s, first military operations, uh, were trained and funded by the Iranian uh, revolutionary guards, and uh, they played a humongous role. And until today, the the connection between Hezbollah and the Islamic Republic of Iran is very clear, whether in terms of economic funding, political support or military support as well. This does not mean, and maybe we'll come back to this, that Hezbollah has to be seen only, you know, as a tool of Iran. It is a Lebanese uh, political actor, but uh, with a clear relationship uh, with Iran. And other elements are very important to understand the establishment and the rise of Hezbollah in Lebanon. It was in a period of the Lebanese civil war and uh, during uh, also uh, Israeli occupation and intervention in Lebanon, uh, notably you know, the very well-known uh, siege of Beirut, which led to the departure of the PLO, the massacre of uh, Sabra shatila under the cover of the Israeli occupation. Definitely the Israeli occupation was one of the main reasons in the foundation of Hezbollah. And another reason is also the fact that there was a trend among Shia Islamic religious leaders growing in the 70s, in the 80s, with various uh, personalities, were pushing forward for a formula of Shia Islamic fundamentalism. And I would say also during the Lebanese Civil War, the disappearance of what was called the Lebanese Shia kind of ruling class uh, from prior 75, 76, that left a space for new uh, Shia political actors to uh, to expand. First, Harakat Amal, but later on, Hezbollah in the 80s. So all these reasons... Uh, explained why Hezbollah was established and will expand to become, at the beginning of the 90s, the main Shia political party uh, within Lebanon.
0: It was originally um, appealed to poor Shia, but as Lebanese society diversified under neoliberalism, but also um, Hezbollah sought to grow, um, this class composition has changed somewhat, right?
2: Indeed, if we look at the, the origins of Hezbollah, it appealed first to Lebanese Shia popular classes. Its leadership was mostly composed of, you know, petite bourgeoisie um, and um, small clerics, uh, etc. With the party growing at the end of the 80s and beginning of the 90s, it increasingly included a uh, larger section of the, the Shia population, including liberal higher middle class and sections of the Shia bourgeoisie that or, were or created through capital investment by, you know, the Islamic Republic of Iran for Hezbollah, or other section of the Shia bourgeoisie, just as other fraction of the sectarian bourgeoisie seeking the protection of the main political party of its own community. Uh, and why Hezbollah becoming, you know, the most important Shia political party, increasingly it also included uh, in this perspective different fractions of the Shia bourgeoisie within Lebanon, but also in the diaspora in Western Africa, Europe to some extent, uh, North America, South America, we can find different forms of support coming from poor bourgeoisie or petite bourgeoisie of the Shia diaspora towards uh, Hezbollah. So indeed, uh, it became a mass party, and as other Islamic fundamentalist parties, while its leadership became, there was a form of uh, bourgeoisification, its main popular base remains in, in popular classes, but also including various classes, so not w- in one single class.
0: And one of the ways it grew was uh, through the provision of an elaborate network of social services, right? Could you talk about uh, what they do and how that helped them grow?
2: Indeed, with the support of the Islamic Republic of Iran, especially its funding, but not only the Hezbollah civil society took the model of the Islamic Republic of Iran following its establishment in 79. For example, one of the main construction company of Hezbollah, Jihad Albina, was uh, based on the similar Jihad uh, Albina uh, in Iran. It was a similar kind of uh, company within Iran after 79. And it built, as I was saying, a, ho- a huge civil society. This is why today, Hezbollah, between its uh, civil component, if you want, with its civil society, and its, if you want, military component, is one of the biggest employers in Lebanon. But definitely its civil society has been key to build its popular basis in a framework of a, a Lebanese state that has always been... Because of the the policies of the Lebanese bourgeoisie to remain the Lebanese state weak, especially when it comes to social services, its network of civil society was a way to to have links with Shia popular clashes, but also as a way to transmit its ideology to uh, these popular classes and to support, obviously, the kind of resistance component of Hezbollah when it came to its confrontation with Israel.
0: Iran, let's clarify this uh, because this is an important part. I think a lot of Western analysts view Hezbollah as nothing more than a puppet of Iran. And certainly Iran has a very strong influence on it and has always has, but it would be a caricature to call it a, a puppet of Iran, right?
2: I totally agree with you, uh, Duke. I think it's a mistake and doesn't help us to understand Hezbollah and its political decisions, etc. It's key to understand Hezbollah as the main success in the the policy of the export of the Islamic revolution, of the Islamic Republic of Iran. This said, uh, we have to consider Hezbollah as a Lebanese political actor with its own also interest. And actually, when interests of Hezbollah are winning or gaining in Lebanon and, and the wider region, obviously it serves as well very often the Iranian agenda and vice versa as well. But moreover, I think since, especially following the death of Qasem Soleimani in 2020, yes, by uh, following its assassination by the U.S., Hezbollah's importance have grown in relation to, to Iran. It, uh, Hezbollah increasingly served, you know, as a, a key mediator when it came to Iraqi uh, Shia militias, political parties to play a mediating role, or, for example, a mediating role between Hamas and uh, the same regime, which uh, allowed for the kind of reconciliation between the two actors, even though the reconciliation remains uh, limited until today. But they definitely have shared interests. But it's it's wrong to see that Hezbollah is just implementing the decisions of the Islamic Republic of Iran. I think it's a much more relationship with exchanges and seeking on both sides to advance their interests. That, again, are very common and shared but we shouldn't see, you know, Hezbollah only uh, implementing uh, Iranian uh, decisions.
0: And it's also um, established a great deal of hegemony over uh, a significant portion of the Lebanese population. Uh, and it's part of the government, right? So it is a very established political actor within Lebanon.
2: Yeah, I think uh, since 2005, following the withdrawal of the Syrian regime from Lebanon, Hezbollah have participated in all uh, Lebanese government that have been generally united uh, national uh, governments and has participated in implementation of various type of policies, including neoliber- neoliberal policies, austerity measures, etc. And in 2019, during the Lebanese uprising, uh, Hezbollah was one of the main parties opposing the uprising. It's actually sent some of its supporters and members to crush, you know, sit-ins, to crush protesters. And because Hezbollah has become the most important political actor, uh, in Lebanon, its responsibility is even more important. And as you were saying, it, it's a form of hegemony among, among the, the Shia population. But today, def- definitely, we can say that one of the biggest defenders, because of its military and political capacities of the Lebanese sectarian neoliberal system, is uh, Hezbollah, even though if it's, it's not its preferred political system. Their preferred political system is a form of Islamic Republic that is not in contradiction to neoliberalism. But because of the diversity of, uh, of Lebanon, the various communities, it cannot implement it. It became uh, the most important political party today in Lebanon and therefore playing a key role in defending the Lebanese sectarian uh, and neoliberal system. It is definitely the the dominating actor on the Lebanese political scene.
0: I'm speaking with Joseph Daher, author of Hezbollah, The Political Economy, The Party of God, published by Pluto. And there's no way in which we could construe this as an anti-capitalist movement. It is uh, a very pro-capitalist organization. Even, you know, they they have these social welfare um, aspects to them, but uh, that's uh, alongside capitalism,
2: not opposed to it. We need to be clear. Historically speaking, Islamic fundamentalism, whether Shia or Sunni, have been in favor of capitalism. Uh, And again, I think we have to see the, the connection between the ideology of Khomeini and Hezbollah as a child of the kind of export of Islamic revolution. Khomeini, one of the key principles he always maintained throughout his life is the defense of private property. Following the, the establishment of the Islamic Republic of Iran in 79, they crushed the, you know, the various leftist parties or kind of uh, independent uh, trade union workers movement. And similarly, when you look at uh, Hezbollah, uh, it opposed the various social movements uh, within Lebanon, especially in the beginning of the 2010. The main trade unions have been uh, defeated by Hezbollah and the rest of the Lebanese ruling class. And not only Islamic fundamentalists, but religious fundamentalism throughout the world have always been in favor of capitalism, while at the same time promoting forms of, uh, of charity organizations in order also to transmit their ideology uh, to the popular classes. Uh, there's a major difference, I think, between charity organization and forms of social justice. Forms of social justice have the objective of emancipation of the popular classes while the charity organization have no willingness to seek a form of uh, emancipation. And again, you can see common forms of this kind of religious fundamentalism when you look at, you know, the right wing of the republicanism with very hardcore, you know, religious, um, conservatism while at the same time encouraging a diminishing or a weakening of the state and its social services and and promoting charity organization. We've seen similar kind of dynamics when it comes to the Middle East and North Africa when it comes to Islamic fundamentalism, supporting neoliberalism, encouraging austerity measures while promoting charity organizations.
0: That ideology you mentioned, um, it is theocratic, and they have a very conservative view of gender relations, right? Uh, Just talk a bit about the ideology.
2: Indeed, when it comes to, to gender and if you look at Hezbollah specifically, they've been promoting, you know, a kind of Islamic uh, model for women that uh, is completely opposed uh, to feminism with a focus on uh, mothership, education, specific jobs for women, while, you know, there have been various statements made by Hezbollah officials that, you know, uh, a woman that is and or that is divorced is not something really good. And that the Islamic model is the only way to follow for uh, Muslim women. Otherwise, if they join you know, feminist movements, they would fall into a form of Western cultural imperialism. Similarly, we've seen increasing attacks, but this is not limited to the Middle East. We see, can see this uh, throughout the world, but Hezbollah have increasingly attacked LGBT uh, individuals and communities uh, rhetorically uh, in Lebanon. Hassan Nasser calling uh, to their assassination. But again, this is not limited to the Middle East. We're seeing this throughout the world. So no, definitely in terms of ideology, Hezbollah is a reactionary political party, which sometimes, you know, in terms of ideology, in terms of its essentialism, falls in a way in the, the, the clash of civilization of the conservative American intellectual uh, Huntington. I don't think it's a form of anti-imperialism. You can't be anti-imperialism without opposing capitalism or dynamics of capitalism, which is definitely not the case when it comes to to Hezbollah. Okay,
0: let's talk about them in the present and the current uh, war in Gaza. It seems that Hezbollah has been rather restrained in its response. How do you read uh, their attitude in the light of this
2: war? The reason for the the restraints of Hezbollah has been linked to to different dynamics. First of all, we've seen since 2006 following Israeli defeat. It launched its war against uh, Hezbollah. And I speak of defeat because it wasn't able to achieve any kind of its initial objectives. uh, Quite on the opposite, Hezbollah came out very much uh, popular and very much resilient after 2006. But after 2006, we've seen Hezbollah more and more concentrate on other uh, objectives rather than the resistance uh, against uh, Israel. You know, we could see this prior... 2006, especially after the the withdrawal of Israel from uh, south of Lebanon in 2000, uh, internally speaking, uh, seek to to you know expand its power, become you know the hegemonic party, the dominating party in Lebanon, and it lost increasingly support within Lebanon. And it knows Hezbollah. One of its reasons why it's restraining kind of its military capacities regarding uh, Israel is that it does not benefit the similar support than in 2006. Hezbollah as being seen as one of the most uh, important uh, defenders today of the Lebanese neoliberal sectarian political party also lost popularity, as we saw in the Lebanese uprising of 2019, or is considered with other political actors as responsible for the Beirut blast in 2020. So restraint is also linked to the, to the isolation, if you want, of Hezbollah's on the national scene it also linked to uh, wider Iranian, also geopolitical uh, objectives. Iran doesn't want to see the crown jewel, the nexus of influence in the region being weakened, because it sees also the issue about being able to maintain a form of uh, balance of forces with Hezbollah, but also other actors in the region when it comes to its negotiation uh, with the U.S. And therefore, if Hezbollah would be much more uh, involved against Israel, It would probably see, you know, the Israel bombing massively and launching a war against Lebanon and Hezbollah losing its infrastructures, which massively expanded after 2006. So so for all these reasons, Hezbollah does not want to lose, you know, more popularity, more isolation on the political scene in Lebanon, doesn't want to see its infrastructures being crushed And without forgetting also the deep economic crisis in Lebanon since uh, October 2019. For a lot of Lebanese, uh, and Hezbollah knows it, they say they cannot sustain another crisis. And in addition to to all this, we also see it's more geopolitical perspective, common with Iran, saying that it doesn't want to be weakened in future prospects of negotiation with the U.S. So for all these reasons, we've seen Hezbollah restraint But I think in many aspects, we're seeing that the dangers against Hezbollah uh, is growing and against Lebanon per se. As Israel announced itself, Israeli Occupation Army entered a new phase when it comes to the Gaza war to concentrate a bit more on Lebanon. And this is why we've seen also an increase of targeting by the Israeli Occupation Army of particular personalities, being the number two of Hamas, Aruri, the neighborhoods where Hezbollah is the dominant forces, and Dahyeh, uh, or the assassination of Wissam Tawil, which was also in the south uh, the most important commander of Hezbollah. Because Israel is actually pushing to achieve political objectives in Lebanon, to push Hezbollah 10 kilometers away from the Lebanese-Israeli border. Hezbollah missed an occasion, opportunity, if it it involved itself much more at the beginning of October. It would have pushed Israel on two fronts, uh, which it, it has not been doing, contrary to what the Secretary General uh, Hezbollah Hassan Arsala was uh, saying he justified the position of Hezbollah being only a front of pressure, maintaining and obstructing Israeli total war against the Gaza by its actions. Actually, we saw Israeli occupation army not being obstructed by the Lebanese front and being able to go further and further in the genocidal war against the Palestinians in Gaza.
0: On the other hand, Hezbollah
2: is a formidable military actor, right? Hezbollah is a very important military uh, actor, but it's, Hezbollah has lost nearly 160 soldiers since uh, the beginning of the the Israeli-Jewish war against the Palestinians in the Gaza war. This is quite a, a high number. It has uh, pushed more than 80,000 Lebanese displaced forcibly uh, of their homes uh, and houses in the south, destroyed, you know, important uh, agricultural uh, lands in the South, and assassinated quite important personalities. And what Hezbollah has been doing is, you know, kind of calculated reactions to this. So definitely, if Hezbollah could use all its military capacity, this could reach important infrastructures, urban areas uh, within, you know, historic Palestine, uh, Israel, uh, like Tel Aviv, uh, and etc. Even though the Hezbollah military capacities could push you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, of Israelis to be displaced, I think that the most important issue is that the, the U.S. did not give the green light for uh, a total war of Israel against uh, Lebanon because also the U.S., while it wants to, to help Israel uh, obtain its uh, objectives in Lebanon and push Hezbollah 10 kilometers away from uh, the border, has not given yet the green light to Israel because also it scares that its main allies in the region will even lose more credits, Uh, especially most of the Arab regimes allied with uh, the U.S. have not been doing anything to help the Palestinians, quite on the opposite. And therefore, we've seen demonstrations in, you know, in Jordan, Egypt, uh, in various countries, you know, mounting uh, pressures against also these regimes. Because every time the Palestinian issue comes back to the fore, uh, we see demonstrations In the majority of countries of the region, but also this brings forward to the criticism against this regime, whether regarding uh, their policies, their social policies, but also the collaboration with various Western or imperialist uh, forces.
0: I hear people talking now about access and resistance to Israel, Iran in the lead, but also Hezbollah, Hamas, other smaller organizations does this exist in any meaningful sense? And what is Hezbollah's relationship to the other alleged elements of this axis of resistance?
2: There's two, uh, two sides to, to your question. First of all, uh, is there any kind of axis of resistance? What, it depends what we mean by the axis of resistance. I, would, I wouldn't call it this way. I would say a, an axis that is opposed today to, to U.S. hegemony for their own political interest in the region, but could seek forms of agreement, with the U.S. in the future. And I think one of the most important examples, because at the head of this so-called axis of resistance today is the Islamic Republic of Iran that has been trying to seek forms of understanding, agreement with the U.S., the nuclear agreement being one. Similarly, we've seen the Iran and U.S. collaborate in Afghanistan. Iran and the political parties supported by Iran in the region do not have a strategic opposition to the U.S. could seek forms of agreement but uh, trying to consolidate uh, their power through the opposition to the U.S., which is very different to say that it's an axis of resistance trying to actually change the political and social dynamics uh, of the region. Quite on the opposite, we've seen very often Iran support authoritarian regimes. It, it's, it's itself is an autocratic, theocratic, and neoliberal political system seeking, you know, to, to crush all the uprisings uh, occurring within Iran or in uh, regimes that are allied uh, with Iran. The way Iran answered to, you know, to the assassination by Israel of its commanders or by Hassan Soleimani wasn't against the U.S. directly, but against, you know, forms of U.S. interests in the region. Lately speaking was the bombardment uh, in Kurdistan, Iraq, not even against U.S. interest, but by the assassination of a Kurdish businessmen. Now come to the second question, what is the role of Hezbollah in it? And this is where we've seen the growing importance of Hezbollah. Hezbollah has been a model for many, you know, uh, political parties connected or supported by the Islamic Republic of Iran. And definitely Hezbollah leadership has played an, an important role to assist also these uh, political parties and militias. So Hezbollah has sent, you know, military uh, experts to Iraq and to Yemen to help these parties, you know, uh, increase their capacities.
0: Finally, the relationship with Israel. What is the current attitude? Do you want to drive it into the sea or reach some kind of accommodation?
2: What is at least their wish? When I started really being active politically and doing my research in the mid-2000s, already in the mid-2000s, Hezbollah's officials were saying, you know, it's not our role to to, to liberate uh, Palestine. Our role is to defend the sovereignty of Lebanon, to you know liberate the territories that are still occupied by Israel the core of Hezbollah's strategy or intervention or military confrontation until recently uh, was not with uh, with Israel if you look at its intervention in Syria was was much more uh, important this does not mean that you know they just forgot about the the, the Israeli issue because Israel remains a threat to Lebanon and to the whole region since 7th of October we can see this or oh, for example last year it accepted a kind of demarcation of the, the territories between Lebanon and Israel. Uh, this was a sign, you know, forms of accommodation. And I think, again, we have to understand it in a more regional perspective linked to the Iranian interests. So the resistance against Israel remains a key ideological and rhetorical issue, but could find forms of accommodation in the future, but the main problem is, is Israel uh, ready for this? And it remains, you know, the most aggressive actor in the region and the actor that actually increases the instability of its region by its policies. Quite on the opposite to what, you know, Western or experts or officials say that Israel is, you know, whether being a beacon of democracy or stability in the region. No, on the opposite. It's an apartheid state. It's a state that still occupies, you know, Lebanese territories uh, Syrian territories that still occupy the historic Palestine, not only the West Bank and, and the Gaza Strip and uh, East Jerusalem, etc. And it still has the major support of the U.S. The current war against the genocidal war against the Gaza Strip could not occur without the key support, whether politically, militarily and economically, of the U.S., the main problem is how do we move forward? So while I believe that Hezbollah could find, just as Iran could find forms of accommodation, just as if you see Hezbollah has found, you know, has participated in a national unity government with Lebanese political actors supported by Gulf monarchies or the U.S. or the West, it could basically, on a wider regional perspective, could also seek some forms of recommendation, including Israel, the only way to to challenge, you know, this kind of Western various imperialist forces influence in the region is to have uprisings from below, connection through it, to expect, hopefully one day, you know, the liberation of the Palestinians uh, in Palestine. But it won't come, whether through so-called negotiation, peace negotiations sponsored by the U.S., or by authoritarian regimes in the region, including Iran, Turkey, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and all over, that seek only their own interests, and not the liberation of the the, the people, uh, the popular classes of the region, including the Palestinians.
0: I was Joseph Daher, author of Hezbollah, The Political Economy of the Party of God, published in 2016 by Pluto. I'll be interviewing another expert in Hezbollah, Oralee Daher, next week. Despite sharing a surname, the two are unrelated, and they have rather different politics. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a bit of sadness as a gift from Adrian Lanker. Till next week, bye. Two, one, two, three, four.